Welcome to Higher State of Being, our bi-monthly podcast about how you can live your best life. I'm Kat Cogren. And I'm Teddy Rocklin, certified clinical hypnotherapist and registered psychotherapist. Together, we're going to explore topics that we all care about, like how to improve sleep, how to reduce anxiety, and how to have healthier relationships. We will be inviting expert guests to share their professional knowledge on each of these fascinating topics and so much more. At the end of each episode, we'll post a guided meditation so that you can reinforce the techniques and strategies that we've discussed. Each podcast, together with the associated guided meditation, will help you live your life more fully and reach a higher state of being. Hello, and welcome to Higher State of Being, a podcast about how you can live your best life. I'm Kat Cogren, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Teddy Rockland. Teddy, how are you today? I'm really well. How are you, Kat? Oh, doing great. And I'm, I'm very excited, as always. I, I think I say this every single podcast, how excited I am. But it's, it's, it's just amazing the caliber of special guests and experts that we get on our show. And today, that caliber is like reaching a new level. I would like to introduce to everyone, Dr. Katie McChesney. How are you, Katie? I am well. Thank you for having me on your talk show today. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, Katie is a licensed clinical health psychologist serving as an embedded clinician, educator, consultant, and scholar in the Naval Medical Center San Diego's Pain Medicine Center. So very interesting line of work, Katie. How did you get into this type of work? Of folks who had the opportunity to heal and demonstrate resilience. So um, it just kind of happened that I was able to find work out on the West Coast using a certain form of psychotherapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, not only to help with um, psychological post-traumatic stress, but also uh, the results of injuries sustained in uh, the combat forum with our active duty service members and veterans. Wow. So you've been working in this line of work for how long now? Probably, I guess we can say since 2008. So just a little over 10 years, yes. Awesome. And Teddy, why are we discussing this topic today? I know that's kind of an obvious question to most, but let's break (laughs) it down a little bit for our listeners on why this is our topic this week. Sure, sure. So why are we talking about pain management? Because nobody gets through the human experience without experiencing pain. Being born is painful Uh, for the great majority of people. I would say death is painful. The fear is painful. Mild and extreme injuries, acute, chronic um, pain is just a thing that happens in everybody's life. And knowing how to manage it, how to recognize when this is something that is going to go away, when it's not something that's going to go away, and how you can cope with it. And uh, I think very importantly, when to recognize if this is a pain that you need to stop immediately, if you can, burn, ow, um, or if this is a healing pain, recovering from a surgery. So noticing what exactly is going on with your, your body and your emotional reaction to it, and then what you can do about it. I think everybody can benefit from having this information. And Katie, your thoughts on this? Why? First of all, you went into the line of work and focus on this, but why do you think this is an important topic for us to discuss 
um, as part of the human condition? Well, in order for us to be human and as part of the natural human biology, we are all for the most part hardwired to process pain and pain is a necessary biological event that we experience both acutely and in the long term. But many of us who have, believe in evolution or uh, biological evolution recognize that it is a necessary experience in order to maintain human survival, in order to protect us from harm, and in order for us to be able to procreate the species. Um, on an acute level, it's necessary. We simply need it. And, and we know this from looking at studies of those individuals who unfortunately have that uh, genetic predisposition to not experience pain. Um, these individuals don't necessarily live very long. In fact, it's quite surprising if they make it to the age of 30 without having um, experienced serious internal organ damage or fractures to the bones. So um, I find it fascinating and um, also I think it would be foolhardy for any one of us here to assume that we could live to the end of our days without experiencing pain. Um, well, also. yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I have to say, too, as we are becoming more and more aware of the opioid crisis across North America, it's become even more important that we gain a better understanding of the difference between, um, as uh, Teddy had mentioned, the difference between acute injury and tissue damage versus what happens when pain becomes chronic. So that's the learning how the coping mechanisms and how they're different based on the different kinds of pains is there's pain that keeps us safe, pain that we have from you know injury, trauma, and the, the pain of going forward to heal. And then there's chronic long-term pain that may be something very different Absolutely. than those first two. And I would say there's also a valuable distinction in recognizing um, for a lot of people, the concept is that pain is an enemy. Pain is the bad guy, the thing that you're right. trying with everything that you have to avoid. When I would say in, in many cases, pain is not the enemy. It's actually a messenger. It's that that uh, neurological impulse that gets shot to your brain saying, hey, stop that. Or, hey, you might want to shift a little bit or, hey, pay attention over here. So when pain is a messenger, recognizing what that message is saying quickly allows you to stop the pain a whole lot faster or mitigate and lessen it significantly. So rather than seeing pain as as uh, something to be com combated or completely done away with, hence the opioid crisis, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to feel it, maybe you can feel it less, be aware of it sooner and and have less. All right. I, if yeah. I could add something to that, this is where I find the um, current status of certain patients to be fascinating because that signaling within the brain is only useful as long as the tissues are still in the process of healing from original damage. One of the things that um, medical science is now looking at today is what happens when we know that the tissues of the body have healed to the greatest extent possible, which for the most part is within three to six months, and yet the patient is still experiencing pain. We've learned enough to recognize that the original messaging that occurs is no longer useful because what it can wind up doing as a consequence is create more cognitive anticipatory 
thinking, worrying. We recognize through PET scans that the areas of the brain that used to register only the uh, psychomotor locations of pain have now broadened and networks that are more responsible for anxiety, fear, um, behavioral avoidance of doing things become more interconnected, more strongly wired. And as a result, what we wind up seeing is not only phobic responses of moving the body, but in the long term deconditioning um, and almost a perseverative or worried nature about what it would mean to move the body. And now we're heading into a completely different spectrum, a different animal, if you will, where the, the sheer act of avoiding behavior actually creates a change in the brain whereby the brain is trying to reach out and find out what's safe. And the experience that the person observes is a sensation that is often interpreted as noxious. So it can actually become um, a downward spiral where we wind up seeing deconditioning, greater dependence on medications, more behavioral avoidance, weight gain. Um, again, a totally different animal. Pain signaling no longer is useful. And that's right. kind of the area of work where, where I come in. Yeah. So we're going from something that's a physiologically based pain to something that's becoming more insidious psychologically. And it's, it's bigger than just the tissue damage in the, that was originally there. Correct. Correct. We now recognize that over time, the same areas of the brain that process anxiety, depression, emotional arousal, and behavioral avoidance are more activated than the original areas of the actual tissue location of what happened. So that kind of brings us to pain in the modern world. And I want to touch on, you know, we talked about in our pre-interview, the basic biomedical model of pain that we think of today in, in medical practice. It goes way back to the 1400s. Am I, am I remembering that from our notes correctly, <laughs> Katie? <laughs> tell us a little I, bit about, yeah. about where we are in that spectrum of how we've traditionally treated pain and where that goes in what you're doing and what we can look forward to in the future. It's a loaded question. Um, essentially, if we look at the way Western industrialized medicine has evolved, it stems from what I'm going to refer to as a biomedical model. Some people often refer to it as the dualistic model, whereby the mind and the psyche and the brain are separate from the body parts. And by definition, some of the philosophy on injury to the body stems from traditions that fall way back um, from Descartes and the, the model whereby pain is a simplistic messenger. So for example, if I were to step on a nail, then the pressure that goes through that part of my foot travels unidirectionally to my spinal cord and goes just to the brain. And the sensation is felt that way. Ironically, um, as a result, we recognize, okay, first of all, as we were saying, pain is so much more complex than that. But when we look at the way we treat uh, injury, the way we treat disease. The biomedical model operates on this premise that if somebody has a symptom, for example, a sign, um, that symptom, whether it's inflammation or a cut on the skin, indicates that something is out of balance. 
that there's something that's broken or otherwise not right very mechanically speaking and so the goal of the person in the white lab coat with the expertise is supposed to go to the source of that symptom fix or repair what is wrong or broken and then bring balance back to the dynamic of the health and health back then has been defined as the absence of symptoms right it's, it makes sense in many areas of medicine right so I think a perfect example is if you break a bone, right? We can observe the deformity of the bone. It hurts. We know that there's been something anatomically messed with. So a physician goes in, resets the bone, puts the cast, the repair takes place, pain resides, goes away, we feel fine. That model works great for acute injuries like that. Mm -hmm. It may also work quite well with certain forms of infection, certain forms of cancer um, and disease. It does not necessarily apply when we look at people who present to their physicians with symptoms, signs of discomfort, and there's no laboratory or imaging or x-ray explanation for why it exists. That sets up a conflict for many of us if we're holding on to that old biomedical philosophy and paradigm, the assumption is maybe they just haven't found what's wrong with me yet. Um, right. I need to go to another expert. I need to find out somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Um, and we get stuck in that thought that as long as I'm experiencing this symptom, I'm broken or something is wrong with me. When in fact, what we now understand is certain squeaks, bumps, signs, symptoms may actually part, be part of a more sophisticated process of what is considered wellness. Just because we feel hurt doesn't necessarily mean tissue damage. It doesn't mean harm. Okay. That, yeah, so that brings us to a whole different model. Sorry. Right. Um, right. Well, I was just gonna, I wanted to kind of touch on yeah. that for a second. So, because, you hear stories. I know people, you, you know, close to me and, and just, you know, acquaintances saying this is wrong with me, but, and it hurts, but no one knows why the doctors can't figure it out. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about. You know, so our listeners can relate to what we're talking about is like, yeah, you break your arm, you get the bone set. I, I've expert on that kind of pain and that kind of fix, right? 10 of them myself. So, <laughs> but <laughs> That's that more the pain that no one can identify what the symptoms are that are creating it. That's where we're starting to move into this this new realm of of wellness that we're talking about. Am I paraphrasing correct. that correct? Yeah, I mean, I would argue and we can look at some of the great researchers out there uh, and I'm going to put a plug in and he's not paying me. Lorimer Mosley, um, he is a clinical neuropsychologist, I believe. Um, located in, um, I want to say Australia, but he's written some fantastic literature on the complexity of symptoms. What we're really talking about here is our newer understanding of what we would call the biopsychosocial model in treating pain. Because we now recognize bits and pieces of our body, organs, body parts, um, limbs, are all part of a more whole dynamic interplay and perception is a primary factor of what can generate the experience of suffering. 
what's really necessary, and this is where Dr. Lorimer Mosley comes into play, there needs to be a mental psychological awareness and observation of what is happening in order for the brain to interpret and make sense of what just happened. And then once the brain processes that, a cascade of responses can occur that can either amplify the experience of psychological and somatic feelings of, of pain or can actually turn it down. We can actually alter through some really weird scientific methods where somebody experiences pain simply by messing with their perception. Um, and so I think it just kind of emphasizes how pain is not simply a tissue issue. It is a much more complex process whereby perception is involved, interpretation, what does this mean and how do I need to cope or respond can actually um, influence not just on a behavioral level, but it, the perception can influence genetics, the inflammatory response, the activation of hormones, um, endorphins, in addition to all of these things, which can sometimes become, um, how do I say, dialed out of control um, based on each individual's different presentation. It's very, it's very complicated, very sophisticated. Well, but that's just it. It is a complex holistic system. Our bodies are, the responses are, the mind-body is not separate. It is a whole being and a whole event. Teddy, I know that you've dealt with this both personally on a personal level, as well as, you know, with your clientele. Give mm -hmm. us some experience that you've had with this holistic nature towards pain and and Sure. Yeah. Well, coming back to what you were saying about about Descartes back in the 1400s, uh, the beginning of the Renaissance, Rene Descartes was one of the um, early, early scientists when science wasn't so much a thing, um, basically because it was forbidden by the Catholic Church, which ruled the entire Western Hemisphere, um, at least what we what we know now is our our European history. Um, so the Pope and the Catholic Church forbade any of the scientists do anything with the human body because the human body is the temple of God and that is the realm of the church. Um, the scientists pushed and pushed and pushed on this issue and finally for whatever their reasons were the Pope acquiesced and allowed that the body could be the realm of science but the mind and the spirit were going to remain the realm of the Catholic Church. So there was this understanding that okay, you can go ahead and dissect a dead body. You can go ahead and study it. We can learn about the tissues, but you don't get to touch on and what's going on emotionally, what's going on psychologically, what's going on mentally, what's going on with God in your body. So there was this this, mm -hmm. this huge separation, uh, <laughs> not of church and state, but of, of mind and body. Mind and body. Uh, so the whole thing goes back, I mean, what, we're talking 600 years now of this misconception, and it's only now that we're really, really embracing what basically I think is incredibly obvious, that it's all one. This holistic approach to healing, to me, seems the most obvious way. Um, here, here's an example that I really like. It is not at all infrequent that I will have a usually a woman present to my office with severe migraines. And she doesn't know where these migraines are coming from. She's seen all of these doctors. No one has any idea where she's getting these migraines that are so debilitating that for two or three days, every single month, she just can't function. She has to go into a room all alone, no sound, no light, 
no interruptions. Her kids can't bother her. Dad has to take care of food and, and settling everybody around. She just can't be available. And then when we start to look at the, what would it be like if you just were unavailable for two or three hours a month to everybody who has all these demands on you? Oh, I could never do that. The only way that they get a break is by having these symptoms. It is in no way to imply that this isn't real, that their, their migraines aren't real. Of course they are. But there's a psychosomatic aspect of this where the pain needs to happen in order to create the relief. And there's a misconception about what it is that the relief needs to be from. You can put all the ice packs on your forehead that you want to. doesn't change the fact that your three children are screaming all of the time and you need a break. Um, another example that uh, I, I not at all infrequently, is someone who develops pneumonia shortly after experiencing a traumatic grief. Uh, a couple's married for a very, very long time and the wife passes and the husband will very shortly thereafter contract pneumonia. There are uh, certain theories, which I tend to buy into, that certain emotions are stored in different parts of our body. Um, we feel responsibility in our shoulders. We shoulder the burden we have to carry the weight of. We carry responsibility in our shoulders. Obligations in the neck, um, feeling of supported or unsupported in the spine, uh, guilt and frustration in the hips, various things in the organs, anger in the liver, for example. Um, this goes back to Eastern health and wellness. It had nothing to do with the Catholic Church. So there's been an understanding in the East that there's not a separation the whole time. It's just this Western idea that, oh, I'm I'm having a problem in my leg, so I need to take a painkiller. Maybe that pain in your leg is telling you something. Maybe that pain in your kidney is indicative of something. Maybe that migraine is telling you you need to take a break. And let's just see what happens if you treat this in a different way. Um, for myself with the uh, the injury that I think we talked about in the intro podcast and the car accident that I was in and the severe, severe neck and shoulder injury really speaks to what Katie was talking about with the anticipation of the pain and how debilitating not just the pain is, but the expectation that the pain is going to be there, which prevents you from doing the things that would actually make the pain less or make the healing more likely. There were things for years that I wouldn't even think about doing because thinking about doing them would hurt um, when in fact it's the thinking that's hurting. I, I really appreciate your your commentary there, Teddy, because as I'm listening to you, you're reminding me of one of the things that we do try and teach our patients is the sensation of pain is actually a trigger that activates the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, so from the technical side of the house, that part of our system, if you will, is the part that's the fight or flight, right? That's the activated part of the brain that we've had from the dawn of evolution, right? In order to take care of our survival, if we came face to face with a saber toothed tiger, we have three choices, right? Run, hide, fight it, kill it, and bring it home to the clan to eat, or play dead, right? Fight, flee, or freeze. And we pair that with the sympathetic nervous system, which is strongly involved in narrowing of vision, increased heart rate, increased blood flow to the brain, a sense of urgency. 
And when there's an increased blood flow to the large muscles of the body designed to either fight or flee, it's not going to certain aspects of the brain designed to contemplate the meaning of life, whether or not there is a God, or pulling the lint out of my belly button, right? It's really designed to get us to solve a stressor, get out of there really quickly. And so naturally, if we're constantly experiencing a persistent trigger such as this, persistent stress, it's naturally going to affect our immune system. It's going to affect us on that muscular tension level. And we often talk about how that can amplify, clearly amplify um, the stress response, the pain experience. Many of our patients um, rarely recognize, especially in our culture, the value of having a balanced equilibrium between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The parasympathetic nervous system is the system that's involved in helping us recover from injury, rest, have a reprieve, digest our food, soften our muscle tissues, be able to sleep and sleep deeply, and give the body time to recover and down-regulate that alerting system that brought you all of that activity in the first place. So absolutely, this is absolutely holistic. It can't not be. So appreciate your perspectives. There's uh, another aspect of it that I, I particularly find this interesting. And it's when uh, pain is not about the actuality of what's happening now. It's not about the message of what's going on now. Pain can become a habit and pain can become an identity. And if we take away the habit, there's nothing. And we don't like nothing. And if we take away the identity, there's nothing and we don't like nothing. So to have this self-concept of, oh, I, I really wish I could, but I have this. It allows you to have the, the excuses to limit yourself, to limit your experiences, to limit your obligations, to limit the expectations that are on you. No one expects that I'm going to carry a whole bunch of heavy suitcases around when I'm traveling. It's either gonna be wheels or somebody's gonna be helping me because there is a very real shoulder thing here. But that is putting these limitations on what I think that I can actually do. So when pain is not about paying attention to the messenger as soon as possible, but it's more about an identity or about a habit that you have formed. That's when I think Katie and I and, and people who do the work that we do are able to step in and, and be most effective as someone is willing to acknowledge that this is something that they are recreating and recreating and recreating on a daily or hourly basis. Once someone is aware that they have more power in their own recovery and their own perception of, of pain and comfort, um, that's where that's where the real power is. That's where the healing is. Would you agree, Katie, or would you say something different on that? Oh, absolutely. And what you speak of, I think it becomes such a difficult conversation between Western providers and patients because depending on how a physician or a provider speaks to the patient, it can very frequently bring up this response like, so you're telling me I'm making this up? You're telling well, me this all in my all head. My head. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and it, it can often be misinterpreted as blaming the victim, right? Mm -hmm. You're doing this on purpose in order to gain uh, some benefit, right? There's an ulterior motive here. That is not necessarily the case. And I think it's perfectly legitimate when we work with our patients to inform them, even though 
Western society has trained us to believe that the gentleman or woman in the white lab coat knows everything and is the expert. We need to own up to the fact that there are still many aspects of the human condition we still do not have all of the answers for. And although we have awesome technology, we still do not have all of the tools to be able to explain why somebody is living through a particular experience. These learned patterns of behaviors that you speak of, Teddy, I think indicate how oftentimes the very natural reflexive response that we are all hardwired with is to remove ourselves from what is originally perceived as a threatening or dangerous experience. That is natural. And if we're all built properly, we need to have that. It's important that we have that. The hard part is when that messaging is no longer effective. And what I'm hearing you say is because of a long, persistent, routine, repetitive nature of behaving in that way winds up serving ulterior functions, creating a dynamic of relationships that are unhealthy, um, not just for the person's partner or loved one, but it does, it becomes almost like a downward spiral of functioning for the individual who loses their sense of identity, loses their sense of independence. So what we really try to do is inform the patient that, okay, certain biomedical treatments, needles, knives, medications are absolutely important. They are only part of the solution. We can speak till we're blue in the face. We can give them all sorts of chemicals. And yet at the end of the day, because this is such a, an interdynamic experience, the individual has to be proactive, acting upon the world with their own experience physiologically in order to give the brain the feedback it needs to be able to learn what movements are appropriate, what movements are going to be better, how to retrain the brain to learn. Okay, this is a different kind of experience, right? Again, it might just be a false alarm to protect me. And yet I am aware that by walking across the room, I shouldn't mechanically be putting my body at risk for tissue damage, right? Right. A very delicate conversation to have with our patients. Right. So again, we're going back to our very first podcast on neuroplasticity. There is an opportunity to retrain the brain using neuroplasticity so that we go from a less basic instinct about pain to a higher state of being with it. So we've talked a lot about pain and what it is and what it does. What are some of the new strategies, treatments, methodologies that we're moving towards um, to help get us to that next level? Katie, I'll, I'll, I'll let you start with yeah. that. I was actually going to start to take a couple of notes here. Uh, what's really fascinating in the physical therapy realm of things is this new concept that we're really just talking about, which is what happens the more um, the persistence of pain carries on, there's a tendency for us to think that this is a tissue issue, that it's, in other words, a bottom-up processing experience where we need to start from the limb. And if we can do the work at the limb, then the things that will be remapped will occur neuroplastically in the brain. That's a bottom-up process. And in some cases, that can be appropriate. And it is still used today successfully. What I find more fascinating is what we're going to call a top-down process. Yeah. How do we start once we recognize that 
the pain and the suffering experience is becoming more um, centralized, we say, central nervous system, coming from the brainstem and regulating the rest of the body. What mechanisms can we use to do that? We understand that if some of the fundamental reflexive initial responses to pain, particularly acute pain, come from the deeper, more primitive, um, earlier, lower basal parts of the brain. Um, one of the things that we're aware of these days now is with use of meditation, hypnosis, um, relaxation techniques, um, practicing certain mindfulness and awareness techniques, we can actually utilize the frontal lobe, if you will, the higher cortex to downregulate the lower basal parts of the brain. And those are what are responsible for decreasing the fight or flight response in reaction to triggers. So this is why, you know, when I try to introduce to my military people, right, these are guys who are on the front lines, like, no, I'm not asking you to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. <laughs> like there's a reason why we have enough evidence now to support that this top-down methodology using imagery, um, things of this sort, really do downregulate and can lower things like hypertension, um, stress responses, um, muscle spasms, things of that nature. There's a great buy-in. But another thing that, that I think is fascinating, education. There have been some fantastic studies where people don't even put their hands on the patient. They literally just give the patient some literature or a video regarding how pain is complex and how we need to be thinking about our, you know, how we value moving our bodies um, and just being exposed to some education alone can show through PET scans a reduction in the areas that tend to light up when we feel pain, suggesting that that can actually turn down the amp on someone's subjective experience of pain. So education is a huge component in, in some of the treatments that we do. Yeah, and that's very different than, than the normal strategy of just fixing it. And Teddy, from your perspective and your clientele, what are some of the strategies that, that you give to folks to help with either the acute or chronic pain levels that they're having? One of my favorite tools that I like to use with the people that I'm working with is actually based on a funny, I, I'm not even going to be embarrassed to share this because it's just so hilarious. So uh, my daughter was sharing the movie Hercules with me. And, uh, you know, the, the cartoon Hercules and oh, okay. the devil had two henchmen and the henchmen were pain and panic. Right. And I'm watching this movie and I thought that is genius. That is genius. The only tools that the you know metaphorical devil has are pain and panic. So if I can help the people I'm working with mitigate at least one of those. The, the fear is going to come down. The pain's going to come down. They're so correlated. You can't really separate pain and panic. When you're in pain, you start to panic. When you're in panic, you start to feel your heart is racing. Your lungs can't get a good breath. So they're so closely related. So this this idea is actually inspired by Hercules. Um, pain and panic. Who were the comedic characters in the movie, right? They were, they were comedy bits. Very familiar um, with that. I just love it. I just love this idea. So I started working with people and we started having a look at, first of all, catching your breath. First of all, noticing that you can exhale because anytime a mammal is going through a life or death situation, the first thing they're going to do is <gasps> they're going to breathe in. 
and they're not going to breathe out again until the threat is gone. My thought behind that is because either the sound of the exhale or the, the smell of the breath being exhaled or for whatever reason, the predator or whatever it is, is going to pick up on the exhale. So there's a and it's not until the that your nervous system gets the, the idea, oh my goodness, it must be okay to start to relax and calm down now. So first things first, noticing your breath. When people say, okay, take a deep breath, people go, and who remembers to tell them to exhale? That's the most important bit. So the most important bit is three slow, focus on your breath, exhaling things. That starts to bring the nervous system into um, regulation right there. Then I'll have them think about what's the issue that we're talking about here? What are the things that are, are triggering, upsetting you? And do you need to react to that? Do you have your hand over a burner? Is it, are you getting burned right now? Do you need to react right now? Or is this something to which you can respond? Do you need to respond immediately? Or do you need to respond eventually? Or do you really not need to respond at all? So do I need to react? Okay, let's stop talking about it, do it. Um, do I need to respond? Yeah, and the sooner the better. Do I need to respond? Yeah, eventually. Or do I really, really not need to be giving this my attention and my energy anymore? So I find that in the first session when I'm working with someone on pain management, in some cases, that's all that they need because it didn't cross their subconscious mind that they're holding on to the pain. They're holding on to the panic. They're allowing one to compound the other. And it feels in a way like hell. They don't know how to get out of it. Oh, wait. Wow. Oh, my God. And then a few more exhales and recognize there's nothing to which you need to react right now. So let's bring the pain and panic down that much. There's nothing to which you need to respond right now. Bring down the pain and panic that much. Maybe you want to make sure you don't miss your physical therapy appointment. Maybe you make sure you don't miss your appointment with Dr. McChesney. Maybe you make sure you follow up and click some of the links that you saw on the web, uh, the web page for this podcast because these are going to be valuable resources for how you can respond eventually and, and feel the way that you want to feel. Your body will go into a state of homeostasis, which means it's going to do what it's used to doing. And what if it's used to doing is freaking out, you're going to stay in a state of freaking out. And if what it's used to doing is freaking out and then calming down, it's going to get used to the calming down. And then the freaking out is a lot less likely to happen. So this is how we get the, the control back in our in our pain perception and our pain management. There's so many tools. There's so many ways. My favorite first thing is breathe, breathe, breathe. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we're shifting from this dualistic to a holistic approach to pain management in the individuals, in, in people and, and in you know, where we're going. But right. I want to just really quickly someone's listening right now and they're in pain, whether it's acute or chronic, breathe. That's the first thing you need to do. Take a Focus breath. Focus on the exhales. And, and determine if this is a critical situation you need to respond to immediately or what can we do to mm -hmm. you know, mitigate mm -hmm. it long-term. Are there any other things that you would like to share with our listeners before we close out on this topic or subject? I think maybe just to kind of wrap it up, one of the clearest ways that I, I like to try to really, how do I say, motivate the patient 
is to let them know that this is what we call the biopsychosocial new paradigm of how we are coming to understand health and how the body processes things. And it's absolutely understandable and perfectly legitimate to be able to consult or visit a provider who is well experienced in understanding that whatever experience you've had is processing and is being processed through not just the tissues of your body, but also through your mind and through your heart. We, we only add on to our experience with every day that we live and how we choose to respond to those triggers is something that we can help them learn. Although there is this concern that pain can be a downward spiral resulting in ultimate terror, the very thing that brought them there, the neuroplastic ways that brought them there are the same ways we can help them recover. Neuroplasticity is a two-way road and there's some wonderful outcomes um, with the patient's willingness to share their story um, one of the things that I always do that takes me, I think, longer than a typical provider is I don't just talk or ask them about their injury. I want to know their story, including, you know, how they grew up, what relationships they're in. Were there certain traumatic or stressful events that were happening at the same time there was a tissue injury? Because what fires together will wire together. And as cliche as that sounds, that is the absolute process of what occurs when the body keeps the score on a physical as well as a psychological level. And so we have to unpack that. And so I always try to normalize to the patient, you are your own best expert. Only you can tell me your story and help us better understand how your body's been rolling with the punches so that we can meet you halfway, but we have to do this together. Right. And much I love more that. proactive. Yeah. I love that you, the individual, is the best expert on themselves. I think that's a really important thing for everyone to, to remember and go forward with. Teddy, um, yeah. closing thoughts from you today. 100% agree with what Katie just said. Absolutely, completely agree with what Katie just said. Um, and I would also um, say the cure for pain is not just exhale. That is step one. Um, what I would also encourage people to pay attention to, if it's a chronic thing, if it's acute, handle it, handle it. But if this is a chronic thing that you've fallen into the habit of, then I would really want to encourage, um, notice where there's comfort. We get so focused on what we don't like, what we don't want, what we're fearing, what we're dreading, that sometimes we forget to notice that, for example, not one of my toes is broken right now. I completely forgot to notice that both of my feet are so fine. I totally <laughs> forgot to notice my spleen is in such good shape. I don't even know what it does. I don't even know what it does. Where exactly? I, I would, you know, it's somewhere in there and it's working so well you don't even notice. We forget to notice that you know our, our fingers are warm because our circulatory system is working. We are not remembering to notice what is working so well because we're hyper-focused on what we don't want. And what we pay attention to gets bigger and brighter and more obvious in our perception. Right. So it's not a matter of ignore it. It's not a matter of pretend it isn't there. It's not a matter of take an opiate and just ignore the whole thing. It's a matter of have a real look at what's really going on. What's your story? Where's your chronic stuff? Where are you repeating your same story over and over again? Where can you respond differently? 
so that you can actually start to affect changes? And where in your body are you so completely fine right now that you forgot to notice that 97 to 99% of you is doing really, really, really well and is really comfortable right now? Right. So focus on the wellness. Focus on what is good, what is mm -hmm. not in pain. Yep. Um, I want to piggyback on what uh, Teddy said there because I think because of the flaws in the traditional biomedical model, there is an assumption that in order to be healthy, I need to be pain free. That might be one of the most difficult conversations that we have. But another takeaway that I often emphasize, and again, this, this piggybacks on Teddy's emphasis on function, wellness, is we now recognize part of the struggle of recovery means you have to be willing to understand in order to have a rich life that you have to be okay having discomfort. And so to really try and change the patient's understanding that um, we're looking at success in terms of how are you living your life? How are you functioning? Can you function and have a rich life? Um, that's more important than have we brought your pain from an eight to a zero right. because we recognize the the pathway is going to be different for each individual. So one person may be able to have a, a neuroplastic response in a matter of a year. One person may be able to have a neuroplastic response within uh, two months. Everybody is different. And so to help the patient recognize again, some pain is useful, helpful, and we have to recognize that it might be um, foolhardy to assume that to be cured means to be pain-free. I don't believe it's realistic for any of us as long as we're living and breathing. And we have to find that, yeah. And there's opportunity for pain to actually move us to the next level. I was in fair amount of pain this morning in my workout. Good pain, but I'm sorry. 50 <laughs> hip touches in a side plank is painful. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Longer, it's making me perform better, feel better, look better in the long run. So I know it's a different pain than what we're talking about, but that type of pain too demotivates people. And, I, and we'll be talking mm -hmm. about that in a subsequent podcast for sure. Um, this is awesome. This has been great. I already feel much better than uh, I did mm -hmm. walking in here, but that's the case with every higher state of being podcast. Uh, very grateful to spend the time with both of you ladies. Katie, thank you for spending time with both Teddy and I. Um, everything you need to know, things we've talked about, links and stuff like that will be associated on our website, Higher State of Being with this podcast. Um, Teddy, you have anything to say here at the end? Having you know experts coming on like Katie and being able to share some of the stories and examples that I've seen in my own practice, I really feel like we're, we're offering some some valuable tools and skills and making things a lot easier for people to live the life of their choice. Exactly. So higherstateofbeing.com, all the supplemental materials will be there, plus the associated guided meditations. We look forward to speaking with you all again in about two weeks. So take care, be well, and strive for that higher state of being. Thank you for listening to Higher State of Being. We invite you to visit higherstateofbeing.com and become part of our community. Here you will find the guided meditations and resources to help you on your journey. Subscribe and get full access to all downloadable meditations, deeper resources, and much more. Visit higherstateofbeing.com.